Good morning. Joining me now from somewhere near Heartland, Minnesota, our good friend, Mr. Al Bed. Hey, Al, how are things out there? Are you uh, adjusting to the cold? Yeah, you know, I am. As long as we get sunshine, I'm I'm happy. Me you too. Know, it's yeah, it's, it can be 25 below in the sunshine, and then I say, well, yeah, it's nice the sunshine, and then it it's spring is just right around the corner. You can almost see it. I think if we lean far enough in one direction, we can probably say there's there's spring right over there. I've been I've been hearing great horned owl hoot back and forth. Is that it's a sign a, of spring? It is, because they're our first uh, nesting bird here, and they do a nifty duet, and he said, he said, I eat skunks, he hoots, and then she replies, me too, and that means <laughs> then that they're going steady, because they, they do eat skunks. And I saw a pileated woodpecker today, so that was pretty cool. It was a male, and you can tell, because a male has a red forehead, and then what we'd call a mustache. Of course, it's not a real mustache, but it has a red forehead and a mustache. And a female has the same things, only they'd be black on her instead of red. And, you know, the, the other day I walked through 13 to 40 inches. I don't know what, to, you know, everybody I talk to gives me a different uh, amount of snow we received in that good snowfall but it was hard snow and i walked through it like a snail with rheumatism just at how we do when we're walking through uneven snow is it because it was hard because it had that crust on top and you can no longer stand on the top of the crust like you did when you were a kid Cause <laughs> yeah. I, remember when that happened and you used to think well i used to be able to walk across this and now all of a sudden you go clunk and then underneath, you know, so we had all that kind of rain-like first, so it's just ice under there. So everybody be really careful. It's treacherous out there. And again, like I say, we walk like a snail with rheumatism to get through it. And I thought of a day years ago when I visited an aunt and uncle in Iowa when similar precipitation had covered the ground, and their neighbor was feeding the birds with an odd feeder, She'd stuck a plunger, handle first in the snow, and then filled up the, the rubber end with bird seed. That works. Yeah, I was taken with the ingenuity, but I hope that the plunger maybe was a new one, that she'd gone to the hardware store and, and got a new one. If she left it there when the summer spring months come, she could use it as a bird bath. That's right. Yeah, I thought it was a great idea. It made me want to run to the nearest uh, <laughs> hardware store and pick up a, a, you know, a dozen or so of them, but... I uh, I got a nice email from uh, Roger Davidson, and Roger, uh, appreciate Roger listening. He listened. He said, I'm up near Leech Lake watching the Eagles, and this was last Tuesday, watching the Eagles and taking long walks with a dog. The sunnies are biting, and the ice is about 22 inches deep. Wow. We missed the snow in northern Minnesota, but we'll have to face it when I return to North Mankato. So <laughs> thanks for listening, Roger. I got a, a lovely phone call from Gary Matthews. Uh, Gary lives in Anchorage, Alaska. And uh, Gary, Gary and I have been friends for, I, I'm not sure how long. I don't even know when we first met. Uh, he's a uh, retired educator and became a superintendent of schools and had a lot of uh, jobs of, of great importance. 
He said in Anchorage they've had 14 inches of snow this year, which puts them about 40 inches below average wow. at this time of the year. So he said it's a concern from them up there because they, they want snow. He saw, as we were speaking, he had a common red poles, some common red poles, and he had a chickadee with a deformed bill. He said it had a very long bill, and it was uh, curved. And there's been a cluster of beak deformities among blacktap chickadees in Alaska, hmm. and it's attracted significant public attention in recent years. I've seen a number of them in Alaska. I think I've only seen one uh, that had a little bit of a bill problem anywhere else, but I've seen a few of them in Alaska. Do they think it and, could be an adaptative thing, or isn't it beneficial at all? I don't think it'd be oh. any benefits to it. Uh, they, they're saying a up to 7% of the adult birds are affected in parts of Alaska. And boy, that's just an unusually high prevalence of deformities in a wild bird population. And the large numbers were first reported in the 1990s, probably the late ones. And then the biologists at the Alaska Science Center began researching these in 1999. And the deformed bills occur primarily in south-central Alaska, but they've been increasingly reported from western and central parts of the state. But the the first deformed bill on a black-capped chickadee, again, was uh, the winter of 91 and 92. And that winter, single chickadees with deformed beaks were seen in the King Salmon and Naknek in the Bristol Bay region, and in Wasilla and near Nancy Lakes in the Matsu Valley. And by comparison, there's been few responses from outside Alaska. You know, and they've they've checked with Project Feeder Watch, bulletin boards, uh, national media coverage. Chickadees are year-round residents across forested regions of Canada and the northern two-thirds of the contiguous U.S. But only 31 black-capped chickadees with deformed beaks have been documented from outside of Alaska. And chickadees are residents throughout Alaska, and they are primary cavity nesters. That means they excavate holes predominantly for themselves, but predominantly in rotten wood of softwood trees. And they have several adaptations for surviving our cold winters and our short photo period. Uh, they they will enter a state of regulated hypothermia, I guess would be the correct term to use there, at night. They can store and metabolize large amounts of fat daily. So, boy, their goal every day is just get out there and eat as much fat as they possibly could. And they have a well-developed spatial memory to relocate cache food. So they can remember where they put their car keys. But for years, birds have been showing up in the Anchorage area where Gary lives with beaks that are deformed, sometimes so severely misshapen that the birds cannot use them to pick up food and some sadly will starve. And Gary was talking about this one, had an extremely long bent bill, but it would get up and he said sooner or later it'd find a way to get a sunflower seed in its mouth and it would chew on it and apparently this bird was being able to eat enough to survive. That might be a but, weight loss uh, oh, mechanism for some of us. <laughs> oh, man, it'd be, 
I don't know what it'd be. I suppose if our teeth grew too long, so we, we'd have trouble chewing anything would be. But scientists have unlocked uh, one important clue that might explain the bird's woes. There's a previously unknown virus that appears to be closely correlated with the elongated and often twisted beaks of the chickadees. So whether there'll be anything anyone will be able to do about it, at least they're finding out that it's caused by a virus. Well, it's interesting because, you know, they had all those mutated frogs here in our area, and they talked about genetics. I think that was a part of the the issue with that versus this is a virus, so maybe a little different, it sounds like. This is definitely, well, I shouldn't say definitely, but that's what uh, scientists believe now anyway. Uh, Tom Belshin lives down in Glenville. He said he has grackles, still coming to his feeders, also has some Eurasian collared doves in the yard, and he has four hen pheasants coming in to eat. Uh, Scott Davis, Scott is from Allendale. He said in the last week, he's in Allendale, Minnesota, in the last week I've spotted five different snowy owls, five of them. You know, Scott, man, there's a lot of people just want to see one, and you've seen five of them in a week. He saw two a mile apart and two about 15 miles apart, and the pairs were seen over 130 miles apart, and the last one was in the middle. So he saw two, one, two. All were seen in central South Dakota. He said, I've traveled that same area last year, never spotted any before, so I think this must be unusual. Have sightings increased over there this winter? I've talked to a couple of friends from South Dakota, and they really couldn't tell me other. This is an eruption year, Scott, so we are seeing uh, quite a few snowy owls around. I I couldn't find out if this is the most they've seen around central South Dakota because uh, said, well, neither one of them was from central South Dakota. They were from South Dakota, but not the central part. So I guess I would, boy, if you saw five of them, they must be increasing over there. And uh, I hope everybody gets to see one. Uh, Arlene Carr of Northfield said, my husband got some critter food, cracked corn and peanuts and so on has been putting it out on our back picnic table, which I use mostly for potting and such things. We've had uh, up to seven squirrels at a time, crows, <laughs> as well as our usual cardinals, juncos, chickadees. Imagine at night the mice come out and feed on it. We toss our compost, raw veggie and fruit peelings, over the garden gate into our garden, and the rabbits have been going right over the fence for the snow is so high and are feeding on it. If anything is left in the spring, we shovel it into our compost bin. Oh, yeah, compost bins. Do you think they're mice or do you think they might be voles? I'm sure there's voles out there. I'm, that's too. what I'm thinking, too. If it's outside, yeah. there's probably the little, little things because they are kind of hiding under the snow now, but if they smelled something like that, they'd be out. And they would be one that was probably... Oh, they'd be happy about snow, but I don't know how, you know, that underneath there was so much uh, rain and moisture and ice. I don't know if that was a happy time for voles either down in there. Probably made a life miserable for them as well as everybody else. I, a real estate agent in England got an unpleasant surprise when he returned home from a five-week vacation. I know some of you are saying, well, he deserved an unpleasant surprise <laughs> for getting a five-week vacation. But he got into his Volkswagen Golf, his car. It had been parked for five weeks. 
and it started right away. So no problem there. But he had trouble shifting gears. Hmm. So then he decided, well, I'm going to take it in to my guy, the guy at the repair shop. He'll know what to do. Well, then he had to clean it. He had to clean the car a little bit before he took it to the repair shop. And while he was doing that, he found the glove box was full of acorns. Uh-oh. Squirrels had used the car to stash acorns for the winter. The engine bay and the transmission assembly were stuffed with acorns, <laughs> causing the car to shift improperly. And when it was done, he paid, uh, oh, it'd be around $200 in uh, U.S. funds on an invoice that read, to remove acorns from gearbox linkage housing and a dead rat from soundproofing. So, yeah, they found oh. a dead rat in there, too. One year, a squirrel tried filling the box of my pickup with walnuts. The animal was dropping the nuts through a vent on the roof wherein my pickup was parked. And it probably thought the vent was holding a massive amount of walnuts, but they were dropping onto my parked truck and into the box, So, which I kind of appreciated. I liked the walnuts, so I said thanks a lot. But this poor guy over there, I'd say 200 bucks was a... Wasn't a bad thing. Uh, it didn't sound like they chewed anything up. They were just storing stuff. So. How did they get in the glove box? So was there some access on the outside? That's I what I can't no, figure out. Yeah, that's what I wondered too. I wish I had the guy's uh, email address or something. I wanted to say, did they? Did they have the key? Did, <laughs> were, were they pushing the button and then shutting it? Because uh, or was it rusted uh, through or something? It makes me think it must have been a hole on the other side when they were getting into the engine. Uh, area and they could go right in the glove box but i don't know it makes me think that maybe his vw golf has other problems too maybe other issues than just squirrels this is a a really nice uh, question i got some from somebody and i don't know who that person was but uh, it's one of do you have those where you run into somebody and you talk to them and you say, boy, I think I know that person, but there's no name that comes with it? Oh, my gosh. And I, I so hope my husband's with me because he knows if I don't introduce them and I just kind of stand there, he'll say, oh, I'm my name is Jeff. He'll introduce himself and you are. And then, then oh. they'll say it. So then I'm like, ding, 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 ding. Thank you. <laughs> you tag team him. That's nice. But yeah. if he's not there, yeah, what do you do? You just stand there and look dumb. And like you, you say, I, I can't. I know I know him, but I can't remember the oh. name. Well, if this person is listening, because they will recognize because the question, I, I apologize. Give me a call and tell me who you are. And I will, you know, they said, what's eating you, Alan? I said, termites, because I have a wooden head. I, sometimes things don't work. The question was, what's the bird I heard in the old Tarzan movies? <laughs> Anybody that's ever seen an old Tarzan movie probably is hearing that bird call right now. And the voice was that of a kookaburra. It's a hefty member of the kingfisher family. The calls were ill-suited as a kookaburra is an Australian bird. And the bird's call was stock background noise. It was in an episode of the Twilight Zone. It was in uh, it was in the Wizard of Oz. A kookaburra can be heard in the forest, and it earned the nickname Bushman's Clock because of its habit of calling in the morning and then again in the evening. And their call sounds like a loud, 
demented laughter. just one. They had no idea that there would ever be uh, birders serious enough to say, you know, that bird doesn't really belong there. Because uh, for a long time they were piping bird song into golf tournaments to make it just sound nicer. Really? Uh, they they actually did that? Do they still do that? I don't think so, because a lot of <laughs> birders were saying, you know, that bird doesn't, uh, that's <laughs> not really there. there. No, that's not in Alabama. You wouldn't have that bird singing there. So I think they've gone with the more natural sounds now instead of bringing in um, bringing in voice talent and having these other birds come in. Well, you know where you can hear them in the background a lot of times in the big box stores like the Menards, the Home Depots, or the Lowe's, and, and you'll be in there, and somehow those birds get in there, and you feel like you're in, in a tropical or a, in the woods or something because often they are in the store, and it's always funny. I think that you're shopping, and here you hear these birds and sometimes see them flying around. Gail and I were in... Uh... Oh, boy, McAllen, Texas, maybe. I think it was McAllen, maybe far. And we went to an HEB store, which are big supermarkets down there. And I, it's um, the initials of the founder, HEB. But I always said, have enough bananas. That's why I'm going by, because you always need bananas. They had sparrows that would fly up, and they have that little... Um, light that goes through there that uh, allows us to walk up and the door opens it detects us whatever those things are called and the sparrows had figured out apparently and some swallows also that they could fly into the certain area and flutter (laughs) and those doors would open so in they would go so there were house sparrows all over in these hebs which was it was kind of neat in a way because they were cheerful. They were chirping up there, and they were just happy to be in there. I suppose there was a lot for them to eat and probably a place for them to nest in there as I well. would think in a grocery store that would be an issue of maybe sanitation, sanitary yeah. issues perhaps. Yes. <laughs> yes, but the birds don't care about that. No. They were just happy. Hey, Scott Davis said he um, saw five snowy owls, which is just it's the coolest thing. And I've had umpteen people, which that's a lot of people, have asked, I haven't seen a snowy owl, how do I see one? And I always, I don't mean the answer to be flippant, but I say look for one. You have to just look, you want to keep your eyes on the road, but look off, because when you're driving, snowy owls prefer treeless open spaces. So they often sit on the ground to hunt. So rolling terrain, maybe offering a vantage point to survey the surrounding areas to their liking. So you're usually finding them on the ground. They're not usually in, see, I'm picturing them in trees, but they're usually found on the the ground. Not so much in trees, but they will perch atop buildings, fence posts, grain elevators. I've seen them on those big hay bales, uh, utility poles, and other places offering good views. And I found it... uh, I found it real easy to turn a white plastic bag into a snowy owl. When you're driving down the road, you see something white out in the field. And oh. <laughs> it'll pull over and throw binoculars, and it's a, it's a plastic bag. Uh, they're seen at uh, the MSP airport every year sometime between Thanksgiving and Easter because that's tundra to them. And we 
They don't really know how a snowy owl decides where to settle down for the winter. It likely has to do with food and competition might be another factor. But researchers have found that most visiting snowy owls here are healthy with normal weight and fat reserves. The adult males have, oh, it looks nearly pure white to me. You know, when you're from a distance, it'll look really white. The adult females are white with brown barring. And the females are larger than the males, so if you see two of them fairly close, you can tell. Young males will resemble the adult females, but with more spotting on their flight feathers. Some wintering owls do perish. They succumb to vehicle or plane collisions, rodenticide poisoning, uh, power line electrocution, and other hazards that are unnatural to them. And I tell everyone I hope a snowy owl finds them. That seems to be the really easy way, just driving along and there's a snowy owl. Where where do they go in the summer? Because I seem to hear more people talking about in the winter for some reason, or am I just imagining that? Nope, they go way up uh, beyond the, any trees. So they're oh. far, far up in the tundra where they feed on lemmings and nest on the ground up there and uh, They come down here when there's a lot of lemmings. When there's a lot of lemmings, then they lay a lot more eggs and they hatch more chicks. So then you have a bazillion snowy owls, so they start flying around trying to find a place where they can settle down for the winter and find a lot of good food. So when there's a lot of lemmings and a lot of young owls, we get some of them come down here. Although there's a uh, project snowstorm that is tagging owls, and they're finding that some owls come down a lot, maybe every year or every other year. So a lot of their migration is still, they're still trying to figure out why why they would come down or why they would come so far. So they had one in Hawaii one year mm. at the airport. So. It's amazing how far they'll go, but I oh, they are so beautiful. I just hope everyone gets to see one. Well, how can we attract more lemmings then to get more? Yeah, snowy? that's fortunately we have enough voles that they can uh, find a lot of voles to eat. Okay, I think on Lake Superior they were um, watching them in in cracks in the ice. The ducks would get in the cracks in the ice, and the snowy owls were picking off some of the ducks. Oh, really? They would find them in wow. that. So. Yeah, and um, they're just, they're good hunters, they're a big bird, and they, um, they're they very, um, they move very well. Their agility is amazing for a bird that size, because there are stories about them picking birds out of the air, So that, which is an amazing thing, because uh, a lot of our owls, uh, great horned owls and some things, would probably struggle a bit with that. I'm not saying they couldn't do it, but these guys seem to be well-suited to do things like that, so. Uh, it's it's incredible. I have one last question, Karen, and it: um, What kind of bird was Woodstock of Peanuts comic strip fame? Oh, good question. Yeah, and they said there's a large amount of money riding on the answer here, <laughs> so there's a little pressure. Um, he was a little yellow bird. I guess that's the safest. He hated being mistaken for the wrong species. Snoopy wondered what type of bird Woodstock was, and he attempted to identify Woodstock with the aid of a field guide. 
asking Woodstock to attempt to imitate various birds, such as the crow, American bittern, uh, Carolina wren, eastern towhee, yellow-billed cuckoo, Canada goose, and a morning warbler. And Snoopy finally gave up by saying, for all I know, you're a duck. Uh, Charles Schultz never indicated what kind of bird Woodstock was supposed to be. Do you think he was a canary, maybe? Yeah, or um, a yellow warbler. I guess if one of the, the people involved in this discussion had little yellow bird as the answer, they would be the winner. I <laughs> you just We don't know what Woodstock is. He was really cool. I love Woodstock, and I have a little Woodstock, a little plastic Woodstock somewhere. I'm not sure where he went. Maybe might have flown away after Charles Schultz died, but... Now, uh, recently, the cartoonist that wrote Beetle Bailey passed away. I'm wondering if you, I can't remember the name now, but wondering if Mort you knew Walker. him. Mort Walker. Mort Walker. Did you know him? Because I know you work with writing cartoons and things sometimes. I, I didn't know him personally, but I had corresponded with him. Yeah. So, got uh, heard from him a bit. So, yeah. yeah. They're all good guys. You know, everybody I've met in that um, that realm have um, just been wonderful people. So what do you think it takes to be a cartoon writer, the gag writer, as you call it? Um, termites eating on your wooden head, <laughs> I think, is uh, probably, it's, you just uh, have to be a little different. Um, you know, you, don't you sometimes wonder, everybody that's really good at certain things, they're, they're, they're different in a way that makes them good at doing what they do it's their special craft because sometimes my son my 10 year old will say that's really cool i i think i want to write cartoons and he draws them and things like that and i said you know i'm not sure i'll ask my friend al how you get in the business yeah i wish i had an answer for you You just um, stumble into things like a lot of us do and um, a lot of us are lucky that we've got uh, good training in one way or another, parents that were supportive and wonderful teachers that taught you so many of the things you need to know. I think it's finding the the, uh, the odd in everyday things, maybe, and the extraordinary in the ordinary, perhaps, might seems like a lot of times when you see cartoons that you just see things in a different way. Yeah, and that's certainly a lot of it. And uh, walking around with the, one of those little Olympus recorders like I do, too, like a geek, um, that helps, too. Because um, I either write things down or I record them right away so I don't forget them. And um, it's funny how much when I record something sounds so funny and then you play it back later and you say, that's the stupidest thing you've ever said, ever. Do you, do you ever try that on, on your wife, Gail, and she looks at you, you think it's really funny, you tell her and she gives you a look and you know it's not funny? Yeah, and we uh, <laughs> we have uh, different senses of humor, too, a little bit. So we, we like different uh, comedic things, I think. We share a lot, but we, we have different things, so which is good. You know, if a man and wife were identical, they'd only you wouldn't need both of you. So it's good we like different things and have different. And her tastes probably are much better than mine. So <laughs> yes. Well, what's going on at the cafe, speaking of taste? Where the food chain is missing a few links, the special is always a Heimlich maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage and now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any of it. I was sitting in there today eating some uh, wonderful breakfast and uh, 
we got talking about, you know, a couple grumps there from the Loafers Club are saying, you know, if this was my restaurant, I'll tell you, this is what I do, that kind of thing. And I thought, man, if I were to open a restaurant, I'd name it wherever, whatever. <laughs> and it'd be a busy place if many couples are like my beautiful wife and me. Because I ask, we're driving down the road, and I ask, where would you like to eat? And she answers, wherever. And then she tosses a question back at me, what are you hungry for? And I answer the traditional way, whatever. And does this routine happen often? Does the History Channel repeat itself? And I'm assuming this is in cars all over going down the road. So I think by naming it wherever, whatever, and people say, where would you like to eat wherever? Well, there's one right there. Whatever, there's one right there. So I think that's a, a billion-dollar idea that I'm just giving away there. Remember, folks, Heartland us while we're driving past. Do something wild today. Get out there and look at a bird. Thank you, Karen, as always, for your wonderful company. And thanks, everybody, for listening to KMSU. You make it great radio. Hey, Al, we'll chat with you next week. Thanks very much. Until next week, happy bird watching. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.